Young Adult Ministry at Village Presbyterian Church. The views and opinions expressed here are solely those of the participants and not necessarily those of Village Presbyterian Church or the PCUSA. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, Hallie here. So this has been a hard week. It's been a hard week for our nation, for our city, and for our own hearts and souls. I know that you are feeling that too. And so this week I did what we do when things are hard, and I asked a friend for some help. I sat down with Nick Pickrell and asked him some of your questions, just some of the things that are on our hearts and minds in these days. Nick leads a new worshiping community and does anti-racism training around the city. And his wisdom and his insight and his experiences, I always find helpful. I think you will too. So listen in and stay encouraged. We are all needed in the change that our nation wants for in these days. My name is Nick Pickerell. I'm the founding pastor and organizer of The Open Table. We are a local 1001 New Worshiping community within the Heartland Presbytery. We are a dinner church, and we meet second and fourth Sunday nights for dinner and conversations about the intersections of social issues and faith. And if I were to give like a goal for The Open Table... Uh, it would be we want to form people to be contemplative activists, folks who are doing really good, deep interior work uh, while also being ready to do the work of justice, because we see those two things as being one and the same. Uh, if one does not accompany the other, uh, then that's that's where it gets a little wonky. So that's a little bit about the church and also our church is open and affirming and seeking to active to be actively anti-racist so to that end we also have a side business called the open table anti-racism trainings and i am uh, one of the administrators for that and what we do is we go out into different organizations both religious and non-religious all over the city to offer anti-racism trainings and our goal is twofold one Uh, We want folks to gain a little bit of knowledge about how racism functions and what racism is. And secondly, we want folks to be able to have an understanding of not only what's going on within their own system that could be serving as barriers uh, to people of color being treated equitably and being given agency and dignity. And we help folks understand how to organize to make that a reality. So, we, we help organizations figure out how to organize those, those systems that are racist and are embedded within their structures so that they can be an organization or institution that is more equitable uh, on down the line. So that, that's a little bit about me and my work. I rather didn't tell you anything about me, but that's a little bit about the open table and the open table anti-racism training. So for the sake of um, our folks that are just listening to us and not looking at us, I am a white woman. I'm going to say in my early 30s. No, that's right. 33 is early 30s, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think 35 is when you're officially the midpoint. Okay, good, again, you've got a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, can you introduce yourself in the same way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm Nick. I'm a, I'm a white male, straight, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Awesome. And I am uh, late 30s. 
a lot of the questions from our community are around being white and wanting to be an ally, wanting to be helpful, wanting to be anti-racist, and also feeling very nervous about our own whiteness and knowing exactly how to enter into that conversation. Could you could you speak to that just a little in your own story and how you, you know, actively doing this work at this moment as a white person, how you how you got there, how you negotiate all of those things? I think that's a really good question for white folks to be wrestling with for sure. For me, uh, I, I became interested in this work, especially when Ferguson happened. Like I was paying attention and was pretty upset whenever uh, Trayvon Martin down in Florida uh, was was killed by someone from their neighborhood watch. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember George Zimmerman, but I'm, I'm yeah. forgetting if he was like a neighborhood watch captain or something where he decided to take justice into his own hands. That, that was very upsetting. And then to see what had happened with Michael Brown being an unarmed black man in Ferguson uh, be killed. And so that, that was when I personally became aware of this stuff in a, it, or felt this more deeply. And some of that very well could be related to the fact that at the time that this happened, I was just leaving Cherithbrook Catholic Worker House, a place where I had lived for five years, where we were offering showers, breakfast, change of clothes to folks who are unhoused or folks who are low income, who are in need of meals or showers or what have you. And um, unfortunately, because of the economic disparities present in our country, because of things like racism, a bunch of the folks who are coming in are people of color, like black, indigenous, and other people of color folks. So yeah, I think I felt it a little bit more because all of a sudden I had a bunch of relationships built up uh, over you know that span of time from 2008 to 2014 when Ferguson happened. And I, I had names and stories with that because up until that point, to be honest, I didn't have very many friends who we had some straight talk and challenged one another uh, who were people of color. I kind of rolled in largely white circles. I kind of read largely white authors. I just kind of lived in that bubble and I did not get out of it until I lived at Cherithbrook. So I think that's what really helped emotionally make me want to act. So naturally, um, you know, some of the things that I bumped up against, um, there's actually a really good document by, uh, Tima Okun called characteristics of white supremacy culture. And I think that's a very helpful document for, uh, well, really all people, but especially white folks to kind of unpack because there are a bunch of ways that, that a bunch of cultural norms that we center and universalize and force everybody else into. And, uh, it, that, that doesn't work and it actually causes harm. So, so some of the things that happened initially, you know, that I exhibited was I found myself one wanting to distance myself from other white people who weren't as woke as me. So in that sense, I turned it into a competition, uh, which is unhelpful. <laughs> and in addition to that, I found myself, you know, wanting to collect as many black friends as I can, again, for the purpose of proving my wokeness. Um, and I would also go to my friends who were people of color seeking kind of like absolution. They would kind of, in a sense, become my pastor. And uh, I realized later that that was very hard it's very hard for people of color to not only carry the the trauma that they're carrying uh, from living a life of oppression in the States and experiencing all of these different stress points, 
but in addition to that, I was asking some of these people of color to also carry my stuff and to help me understand and to take care of my feelings. So, so those were some of the things that, that happened to me. And all of these things, again, are in the Timo Okun document, which I highly recommend. But, you know, there, there was one of the things I fell into is like, you know, there's only one right way to do things. Uh, perfectionism was another thing that I think you had touched on with your specific question. Yeah, there, there, a fear of open conflict. So there's a number of things that I, I wrestle with on a, on a daily basis. And again, a lot of it is because, one, I think a lot of folks don't have a lot of legit friendships, like peer-to-peer relationships with people of color. And if they do have relationships with people of color, I wonder how many of those relationships people of color can actually call you out on your stuff without fear of retribution of like losing a relationship or, or some sort of access that folks may need. It's a tricky thing. It's a really, really tricky thing. But I, I think for us white folks, we need to, one, figure out how we can do a lot of this work to unpack some of the things I just mentioned ourselves while also forming relationships, authentic, accountable relationships with people of color and be willing to sit in the tension of us messing up because it's inevitably going to happen. Some of the anxiety I experience from white folks in our community is just that their fear of messing up or their fear of not being woke enough will prevent them from engaging in it at all. How do you, as you're doing training and thing, how do you help people become more comfortable with all of that discomfort? How do we help people be comfortable with discomfort? So in our trainings, I think that is a difficult task. <laughs> I, I would argue that that's probably a task not best suited for a training because it's a longer work than what a training can accomplish. But I mean, th- there are things that we can say. So, I mean, some of the things that help is defining racism in a more proper way. Um, there's a great video by Robin DiAngelo uh, called Why I'm Not Racist is Only Half the Story. It's like eight minutes and it speaks directly to this question. But in it, um, what she talks about is the reason why there's a lot of white defensiveness around this topic. And she also calls it kind of like a, a racial, like white bullying, because we, we as white folks employ all sorts of tactics to protect ourselves from having to feel guilty. Um, and so we'll do all sorts of things to distract, to take the point of conversation elsewhere, or just get really defensive and put up that wall. What she says is like the, the, the definition is a lot of times we are, we are operating with a definition that says uh, a racist is always an individual and not a system for one. So it's always an individual act because everybody's like, well, I'm not racist. I don't know what's going on. And in fact, I felt like people have been racist to me. And I'm like, Ooh, you're, you're operating on a pretty bad definition. Is that, that's what that comment tells me. So, uh, in that definition that they're probably operating from is every white person, a racist is always an individual, never a system. Uh, that person is making intentional acts to harm people of color and, and they have to be conscious of it. So like, those are like the three main things. So there's like the, the individual, there's the intent and there's the consciousness piece. And so if that's our definition, like anytime someone tells us that we, something that we did is wrong, like what's going to happen. So instead of it being like, Oh shoot, this, this behavior or this action, which is naturally going to probably happen because of my original socialization in a racist society, a society that was built on racism. 
like it's inevitably going to pop up. So, okay, so let me modify that behavior. So instead of taking that route with it, which is a much healthier route, we end up just getting really defensive because we're like, oh, you're, you're attacking my moral character. So now I have to defend my moral character. And so it, it's like what Robin D'Angelo would define as the good, bad binary. So we, we desperately as white folks want to be on the good side of that and not on the bad side of that. And in reality, both good and bad are forms of avoiding responsibility for creating change. Well, really with either of these postures, like you're either going to take the, the, the mindset of the bully or the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bully says it's my way or the highway. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. And so that's a way of shirking responsibility for creating change uh, in, in, in our country. And then the other way would say, well, like, what can I do? I can't do anything. What am I supposed to do? That, that's a, that's a, a victim mentality. And that's also a way of shirking responsibility uh, for creating the change that, that we want to see. So what we have to do is try to find this, this middle ground where we uh, do a lot of deep unpacking to understand who we are at our core, while also understanding that even though we may know who we are at our core, as we all know, we all do things that aren't true to who we are at our core. Uh, it just happens. And so we need to be able to say like, okay, I still know who I am. And this thing that I did was wrong. And I, I'm seeing that it sucks. It hurts, but I need to be willing to like sit with it and modify my behavior. That's the way, that's a way healthier approach, but it's infinitely easier said than done. Infinitely. Yeah, there was like a practice that because I, I suck at conflict. I kind of I kind of do. Um, I've, I've tried to get better at it, but I was a big time accommodator and conflict avoider growing up. And so I've got a lot of work to do around that. An image that has been helpful for me is anytime a comment comes my way, I try to just catch it in my hands, like outside of my body, because I'm, I'm the kind of person that generally lets things in straight in all the way into the deepest part of me. <laughs> so what I try to do now is anytime I hear a critique, I just try to catch it and like look at it outside of myself and, and sit with it right there outside of myself for a while uh, until I have a chance to like let the emotionality of it pass. And then I can look at, okay, where's like the nuggets of truth in here that I need to work on. And then I can discard the rest if once I run it past everything, but it's also hard to do by ourselves. Like that's why it's important to do all this stuff in community. Cause again, like, you know, let us kind of go off on our own and we can get a little wonky. So it's good to do this with one another. And that, that's honestly why, like, what communities of color have been asking white folks to do for some time is to, like, organize yourselves, you know, like, organize yourself so that when you show up, you're not um, acting out of all of this, all of this guilt, all of this defensiveness, trying to take over uh, when you see something being done that's like, different than the way you would want it to be done <laughs> because there are people of color who have been organizing on the ground for some time. And so for me to come in as a white person and be like, Oh, Oh, I see a gap in leadership. Let me fill it. You know, let's like, nah, you got some work to do. You know, you got some work to do. Wanting to talk about things that are happening currently. I think especially as conscientious white people trying, trying to stay awake trying to be whatever the language we want to use is. I think we, we are prone to be supportive of protests that look like they do in our civil rights textbooks. But when things don't look that way, 
a lot of our folks are experiencing just a lot of internal conflict as to how to feel, how to react, how to participate, how to support, all of these things. So tell us about what's going on. Tell us about the world, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the world. <laughs> okay. So, so again, I'm going to point people towards a resource of, of I think, I'll, I'll a real... things online too. After. Okay. Good, good, good. So I would highly recommend... Um, especially when it comes to these specific protests and the fact that there is property destruction happening um, at some of these protests done by a small percentage of folks. Um, There is a great conversation that was aired on Monday, June 1st in the podcast 1A. Um, So I would highly recommend checking out 1A from Monday, June 1st, because they talk all about this. And actually um, they, they fielded, an email that came in from a Kansas City protester talking about the way that the police have responded to the protest by by launching uh, tear gas projectiles, the, the uh, like the rubber projectile things, uh, into the crowds, actually causing one person to uh, get hit in the face with a tear gas canister, and and I think that that person is not going to be able to ever see out of that eye again. So this is the kind of response that we're getting. So the open table confession time, we we were a little slow to respond to these two particular killings of unarmed black folks, like with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, because of our relationship with uh, different community groups, racial justice groups in town, we were called on it and remedied it immediately. And we're, we're activating our people like as, as we speak. So, I mean, what what we're seeing now is kind of a spilling over, uh, like kind of a cry of "this is enough," like it has to stop now, and it's it's been spilling over for some time. Um, that's why you had the uprising in Florida and then the uprising in in Ferguson is because these weren't isolated incidents; uh, these were the worst of those incidents. But there are all sorts of non-fatal ways that police have been harassing these communities uh, really since the beginning. You know, our first police forces in this country were slave patrols. So it's good to know that history, that even the history of policing in our country uh, was, was meant to protect white property and to put down any sort of uprisings that may be happen, happening or to catch runaway slaves so, so police, since its inception, have really been had an eye on communities of color, black folks, indigenous folks, and other communities of color. So what we're seeing is, is exacerbation on, on the streets. And the interesting thing to me, and they talk about it in 1A, is, and I, and I would agree with this, is even in the civil rights movement, um, people didn't pay attention to the marches until suddenly news cameras showed up and people were being killed by the police and other other uh, white folks. And uh, you saw images of children being host, like hit with hoses and had dogs sicked on them. Like that's when white folks started to shift and sympathize. So it's important to recognize that violence was happening even in the civil rights movement. And that even though they're, they're like the civil rights movement chose a strategy of nonviolence, as like a tactical strategy for, for trying to get equity to happen. There were still pieces of the movement and there still was never a consensus that as to whether or not nonviolence was the way to do it. And so what they talk about in 1A now is 
the thing, the thing that kind of is happening is uh, a lot of communities of color are done playing what is called like respectability politics, which means we have to act a certain way in order to get white sympathy. Um, so it's important for us to just like check some of those things. And we can also look to, I, I know f- folks will poke holes in this left and right, but you know, we've got, we've got Jesus who flipped over some tables because uh, he was pretty pissed off at the oppression and injustice that was happening in, in a place that served as like the, the spiritual, economic, and political center of, of the first century. Jesus himself uh, participated in property destruction because I, I think what we're seeing is it's important for us to remember that windows can be replaced, but black lives cannot. And, and I think Jesus understood that because uh, what was happening in the first century is you have this massive amount of oppression. It's, it's a limited good society. And there are a whole lot of folks. And in many ways, it was set up in the same way as what we're experiencing now, where it's like the 99% and then the 1%. So there were all sorts of taxes that were being extracted from folks left and right and being exploited left and right and not given a chance to play the game. Um, they, they were basically there to uh, pad the pockets of you know, the Roman occupiers and the Jewish folks who were in collusion with it. Right. So, so that's, that's what you had happening. And Jesus is just like, oh no, this ain't happening. He flipped some tables over. Like he he did some stuff. Right. So, so it's just important to keep some of those things in mind and, and to recognize that if you look at the totality of the history of our country, the vast majority of the looting and violence that has happened has been from white Europeans towards black indigenous and communities of color. Because what happened? There was genocide and the mass removal of uh, American Indians from their land. Uh, we, we have the enslavement of black people, you know, the, the, and now that's shifted to mass incarceration. We've also had a series of economic policies that were meant to only advantage white folks, uh, like the vast majority of the New Deal. Uh, they excluded domestic workers and farm workers from receiving any of this stuff that largely created the middle class of our country. And this is like, you know, this is, you know, the 1900s, the early 90s. It's not that long ago. And who were the farm workers and the domestic workers? Those were like black folks, indigenous folks and people of color. So they were excluded from that. So we've had we've had this whole we've had a whole long history of looting at an institutional level. And and the fact that we're going to cry foul and dismiss a whole movement who's trying to just not be oppressed anymore, who's trying to not have their sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and moms and dads and children uh, killed, we, we probably need to like check our priorities a little bit. So if, if, we're really, if we're really up in arms about the fact that like some, some chain stores got some windows broken and some stuff taken and we're not that upset or like we should be like infinitely more upset at the fact that George Floyd is no longer with us, that uh, Breonna Taylor is no longer with us. And there are a number of local folks who haven't received any of the national attention, but were unarmed black individuals who were killed by the KCPD. You know, uh, folks like Cameron Lamb and Breonna Hill, although not, not killed as a, as, a, as a trans person who was beaten pretty excessively by the KCPD. So, so these things are happening here. Like it's not it's just we're not receiving the national attention. So I, I would just say, like, let's like take all of these things into consideration when we make these stands.
the response I usually get in this conversation is, Mm -hmm. yes, but if we want to be on the side of the protesters and we do think that we should give attention to the black lives that have been lost and to police violence and to these things, we do want the change to happen. But how in the world will that change happen if if there's destruction happening? Like They're never going to win that way. So what then? Yeah, it's important for us just to talk about like what we mean when we say violence, because I, I am one who I, did, I wasn't always here, but I, I am seeing it now more clearly. I used to be one who anytime I saw anything that didn't look like people walking in an orderly fashion, probably off of a street, <laughs> like anything, uh, anything other than that, I would have been like, I'm not down with that. That is that is too rowdy. That is too, too rowdy. Um, I've shifted uh, a little bit now because again, like who am I to judge the way that folks grieve and the way that folks process the fact that there are so many systems that are all designed to not work for people of color, uh, to not work for folks who are straight, white, male, English speaking, married, Protestant, like all that stuff. You know, like I am, I click, I, I like tick all the boxes that, that, that would say that this society is meant to work for me. Who am I to judge how folks grieve? Additionally, I am not going to equate broken windows and stolen goods to police keeping their knee on the back of the neck of a man who said repeatedly he could not breathe, a man who is unarmed and not doing anything (laughs) uh, to have that happen, and now he is gone. If all we're doing in social media... And all we're doing and conversing with one another is talking about the property destruction and, and saying that that's the violence. Again, I, I think we just need to do some introspection and some inner work and unpack why it is that that's the thing that's hanging us up uh, and not the fact that George Floyd is no longer with us or any of these other like black and brown folks who have lost their lives or have been their lives have been severely impacted by police brutality and the over-policing of black and brown communities and the militarization of those police forces. You know, a lot of the language we use right now is that of rage. That's at least the language that I've been kind of gravitating towards, anger and rage, right? Like as a culture, as white people in this country, like we're very uncomfortable about around public anger in any form. Mm-hmm. You know, a mom said to me the other day, like, well, oh, my gosh, am I doing this to my kid? Because, like, the first time they scream at the store, I'm like, don't scream in front of people, right? Like, we do not let people see our anger feelings. We do a lot of work to, to get rid of that, to push down, to, to channel our anger into more healthy pursuits. So we've been doing some talking. I've been doing my own work around being more in touch with my anger and being more comfortable with anger as a whole and as humans and as white people who are scared of emotions and now feeling uncomfortable by these protests. Do you have any thoughts on yeah. that? I think all these, things, all these things are connected. So us white folks, we have cultural norms that, that say that there's, there's also, there's like a thing called like the cult of niceness, right? So if, if things are here in Kansas. Hey, yeah. So if, if things fall outside of those, uh, what I would say are white cultural norms of the Midwest, you know, then a lot of us will perceive it as being uh, anger. Um, And we don't know what to do with that because in our society, anger is something that is generally frowned upon 
especially, and, and, it, and it grows in condemnation, depending on your racial identity, your class, your sexuality, those kinds of things, and your, your gender as well, right? So it's like, you know, anybody who's run for office who's been a woman, like you just, you can't win uh, with the way that folks are expecting things of you. It's like, okay, what, well, what can I be? You know, because everything is making someone else mad in the way that you're showing them. So, uh, you know, add on to that, like someone who's black and queer and a woman, and then it's like, okay, well, good luck. Good luck navigating that one. So what we need to recognize is that as we do this work of, of trying to create equity and trying to just not be segregated anymore, because we're still segregated as a city, we are going to be bumping up against a bunch of different cultural norms. And so unless we're willing to sit with it and uh, sit in the tension of it and learn from it and reflect on it. Uh, we're going to continue down the path of segregation and continue down the path of uh, just dismissing everybody that has very, very valid, valid, valid critiques of this system. Yeah. I mean, uh, and the way that I think that contemplative work can help with this is, is again, the way we generally start with things is um, in our heads and usually it's all externalized. So as soon as like the second someone becomes a Christian, right? The, inevitably they enter what is known in Dr. Cloud and Townsend's work boundaries. It, they, they enter into a phase known as the obnoxious phase. And I freaking love that term. And it makes so much sense. Uh, Cause even just reflecting on my own stuff, the second I became a Christian, I wanted to sit my parents down and get them saved ASAP, <laughs> ASAP. And it was obnoxious the way that I was like doing this stuff. And I was making everybody uncomfortable. And really what was happening is my worldview was shifting and I was trying to figure out, I was like pushing up against the edges of it and trying to figure out what my new parameters would be, what my new boundaries would be, boundaries in friendships, boundaries with myself, boundaries with all, all the institutions around me. And so when folks become awakened uh, when it comes to the cause of racial justice, same kind of crap happens. And so we get into this weird like spitting match where we're, <laughs> we're like, well, I'm more woke than you. And let me, let me prove to you that because of this intellectual crap that I can regurgitate to you. But in reality, I've done nothing internally to change the way that I show up anywhere. And so for the, the work of contemplation is that interior work where we, we are able to, one, understand who we are um, and understand how that, that meshes, for those of us who are Christian, how that um, meshes with who God is. Because I would say that, like, you know, we, we can't experience God in any way outside of our bodies. Like our bodies are where we experience God. And so why in the world are we like intellectualizing everything? <laughs> why, why are we not living more embodied lives? And so the work of contemplation is to, to get into the body, to become embodied, to understand what's happening in our bodies and, and to start from that point because our bodies have very real information to tell us. And, uh, and it's another way for us to potentially be able to interrupt problematic behaviors as we're getting active in racial justice work. So if all of a sudden I feel a tightness in my chest or I, I feel like a wave of heat, like I know I'm getting pissed and something just got triggered. Right. And so at that point, if, if we're engaged in contemplative practices, hopefully the idea is we are able to almost like lift out of ourselves <laughs> and begin to look like take a 30,000 foot view and be like, okay, I just got real pissed off. And, and why is that? What is happening? And so in real time, ideally, the work of contemplation will help us to be able to see like, oh, okay, so this happened way back here and that led to this moment now. So 
uh, if I'm able to do that, it takes me out of the emotionality of the moment and I can, I can remain present uh, and be able to engage in ways that I otherwise would not be able to, because a lot of us, as soon as we're challenged, we go fight, flight, freeze. And all those mechanisms, um, while it's important, uh, because that, that's a part of our, that's a part of our bodies that are protecting us. Uh, and that protection is good and is needed, but at the same time, we need to recognize its limitations. Like if we let that thing run the show, then we are never going to learn. We are never going to change because anytime we're challenged, we're just fight, flight, freeze. So we need to, the, the work of contemplation will help us unpack that and, and get to a place where we can receive critique and, and be able to immediately own our, own our, own our shit whenever it happens. If, if folks are trying to be helpful and be involved right now, I know there's articles, I know that OpenTable has even released some things, but is there um, a couple of quick things you'd tell people to, to do? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there's, there's a number of things. So I mean, I'm probably simplifying it because again, I'm, I'm a practitioner. I'm not necessarily an expert, but there are a couple of things that are happening, a couple of streams that folks can like get involved in. One is like, okay, work on yourself, like do a lot of interior work yourself. Another thing is like, how do we, how do we show up in ways that are actually helpful uh, to like the larger movement? So when it comes to the first stream of doing work ourselves, it's important to be reading authors of color. It is important to be engaging in conversation with white folks. It's also important to be forming relationships with uh, people of color, not for the purpose of being woke, but for the purpose of like, Hey, I mean, as Christians, we got to recognize that if all we're doing is hanging out with a homogenous group of people, we're not getting the full picture of who God is. So if, if we don't have folks we call friend and family and, you know, brother, sister, sibling, um, who are people of color, just recognize that it, it's actually hurting us because we're not getting, we're not seeing the full, the fullness of God. We're not getting a, a broader picture of who God is. And that's really sad, honestly. So you, you can, you know, watch documentaries. There's about a million of them out there. Uh, you can read books by authors of color. You can read the book Life Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. That's a really excellent starting place for white folks who are wanting to figure out how to show up in better ways. Like that should be just like a primer, you know, just go there. And then if you're, if you're wanting to um, get involved, there are a couple of organizations in town that are doing really good work. So one is Surge KC. They stand for uh, showing up for racial justice. And it's a group of white folks who are accountable to uh, uh, people of color, but it's it's primarily white folks trying to organize white folks to dismantle racism. So this is a this group exists to help educate and organize white people so that white folks show up better uh, to things like the protests happening right now. Uh, there's another organization called One Struggle KC. Uh, they do a lot of really good work, and they're they're led by a queer uh, black woman. Uh, they do a lot of really good work to like support and resource people of color who are looking for freedom from oppression. So those are a couple of different organizations you can look at um, if you're wanting to see how to get involved. If you, it's also good just to show up and be on the front lines. And I, I think one, one thing that white folks will often get caught up on, well, really everybody, honestly, if we're, if we're being real here, is uh, if I don't think the, the protest is done perfectly, I will not come. Um, and I will say that if that's what you're waiting for, uh, know that, that that will never come. And what you're agreeing to is the status quo, which is oppression for a whole mess of people in our country. 
which is not in line, surprisingly enough, with the kingdom of God. So you've got that. You show up on the front lines, be there, put your body there. Don't say anything. Don't say, anything. don't feel like you need to get up and speak. Like just be there, be there and show solidarity in that way. If, if it's something, if that's something that you don't feel like you can do, there are a number of ways to support the protests that are happening. My hope is that these protests turn into almost like occupations that continue for a while until we see legit change on the KCPD. Uh, this morning I was at a clergy press conference where, where a few demands were being made. One is that all police brutality ends. Two is that the KCPD finally buy those body cameras that were in their budget to do last year. And they decided not to, because they decided there were more pressing things. So make sure that KCPD all has body cams and that they are turned on anytime they're out on the streets. Cause we need, I mean, the reason these things are happening is because there is no path to accountability for police officers. Uh, the, the third piece is an independent investigatory board that all complaints can go to. And that board has to be given the authority to penalize any officers that violates the code of conduct. Right. Uh, so anytime police brutality happens, there will be a path to justice for families of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ryan Stokes, like the, the, these kinds of things. Right. The last, the last demand is that the KCPD will go from state control back to local control. We, we are the largest metropolitan area and really only large metropolitan area in the country that does not have local control of our own police department. So uh, the, we are controlled by Jeff City. And so that's problematic. I get why they did it at the time, because the Pendergast machine was a thing in the 30s. Um, but that's not the case anymore. And it's, it's that much harder to hold our own officers who are supposed to be serving as really as guardians of the entire community. It, it doesn't allow us to hold them accountable to the community that they serve. So, so those are the demands. And so the, the faith leaders who were gathered said, Hey, Hey, police department, you got 90 days to enact this stuff. Otherwise we're going to, we're going to do some actions. So, so that's what the faith leaders who gathered this morning made a, made a stance on. Um, but the, with the occupation piece, like we're with folks being at JC Nichols fountain. And I know that there's talk of potentially moving the site because of different citations, um, that folks have received who have gotten arrested at the protest. I know one of the stipulations has been like, you cannot return to the plaza for X amount of time. So that stuff's common. Like I've, I've been arrested a few times and, and there, that it's a pretty common thing to put in there. So there is talk of potentially like moving stuff around, but find out where folks are gathered and find out what supplies folks need, gather the supplies, bring it to them. So if you do not feel comfortable doing that, like it, uh, you can bring supplies to the front lines, uh, things like milk for pepper spray uh, or like food, uh, especially like prepackaged things. So we're not spreading COVID-19, uh, clean masks, water, like these kinds of supplies are really helpful. Um, any sort of like medical supplies that would help uh, folks who get, you know, hit again with, with projectiles and things that are going to come from the police. So all these things are helpful because again, like, all of these things will stop once there's a clear path to justice for folks who are on the receiving end of police brutality. That is what will end this thing. Uh, but uh, until then, I, I hope I hope the pressure keeps up because we, we can't go back to status quo. It's been 
entirely too long that communities of color have had to deal with this. And uh, it's, it's way past time for change. So you can do that. And then there's also bailout funds that you can donate to. There are some funds that are devoted specifically to uh, communities of like people of color who've been arrested. Like one struggle has one and there's um, real justice has one is R E A L E justice. Uh, Both of those are bailout funds. And then there's another one that's just like a more broad one. That's a Casey bailout fund that will uh, seek to release folks on bail. Uh, so the folks aren't spending too much time in the, the city jails. So those are some ways to to get involved. But then other than that, it's always good to just talk to people about this stuff because our our silence uh, is us siding with the oppressor. And I, I think Jesus was pretty clear in that we are to side with the oppressed and speak truth to the powers and principalities, and which is another way of saying the political and economic. Uh, powers of our day. Uh, we, we are called to speak truth to those things. And there's always an invitation to good news. And so the good news is, hey, we can actually create a more perfect union if we were to rid this country of the kinds of things that have caused the oppression in the first place. Amen. Nick, we are so grateful that you have spent some time with us in the midst of these busy days. Thank you so much for that. And we are so glad that all of you have listened in. So keep listening, keep learning, keep asking questions, and stay encouraged. We are all needed here. For a list of all of the resources that were named today and a lot more, you can find those at villageprizeya.org. We'll see you soon.